seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, Ignition sequence start. Six. We have liftoff. Apollo 11 has cleared the tower. Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Oh wow, that was the thrilling sound from the 1969 launch of the Apollo 11 spaceflight to the moon from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. At the time I was just a lad living in a nice sweet town in Ireland and spaceflight was beyond our wildest dreams and imagination. Now I live in the beautiful United States of America. Who will ever forget Neil Armstrong's immortal words as he set foot on the moon? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It now seems a long time ago as we think of how far we've come today. And one person who will never forget the enormous contributions of the Apollo mission is a young businessman in New York City. He's Christopher Craddock, founder and CEO of Rocketstar, which is moving very fast to change how we travel beyond our planet Earth with low-cost, reusable rockets. Yes, reusable. That is something different. And it's sort of like the new green deal of spaceflight. Chris and his crew are in a business space, pardon the pun, shared by the likes of Elon Musk, but Rocketstar says it has the leading edge with its nimble operations and brain thrust of bright minds and engineers. Chris even says his concept and his company could potentially bring thousands of middle-class jobs back to Long Island. Indeed, Chris Craddock grew up on Long Island. He knows many of the movers and shakers in the space flight industry and his vision of space flight and the future of life on the moon and beyond is mind-blowing. Space tourism is around the corner, according to Chris, and transporting livestock and setting up dairy farms on the moon, growing crops on the moon, is a realistic possibility.
if Noah came back today, he might want to talk to Chris Craddock. And instead of an ark, he might build a spaceship for his animals. I kid you not. Here's Chris Craddock explaining in a brief clip. And then we'll get to my full interview with Chris after the intro. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So uh, I, I think at the very least, if we put cattle on uh, a space station or corn or wheat, because you have unlimited real estate in space, you just need the time and the uh, mechanical capability to build something up there. And then you can just do whatever you want. So if you then therefore have all of your farms in space, you can then just do orbital drops of all your food to the rest of the planet and not have to worry about taking up all of that arable land. You can free up the entire plains to tourism again, uh, let the buffalo run free, so on and so forth. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. And I want to welcome our next guest, Christopher Craddock. And he's a extraordinary businessman, uh, had a career on Wall Street. And a story published some time ago, this is how they put it, the Wall Street money man is on the cutting edge of advances in cost-saving reusable rockets which land safely and are ready quickly for the next launch. This innovation could potentially create thousands of middle-class jobs on Long Island where Chris was raised and throughout the United States, maybe even worldwide. Now, while it's not on the same edge as the iPhone, it's getting up there in terms of innovation. Chris, welcome to my podcast. Tell us about what you do and where we're going. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, where we're going, we're going to the future and we're putting things in space on a rapid basis. Uh, what we're looking to do is turn rockets into airlines. Uh, right now, you have anywhere between 20 and 50 launches per year around the world. We want to do that, so we're doing that per week. And you've had some testing going on, and you've had sort of pilot launches, as it were. Yeah. And so far, so good. There's been a lot of positive feedback. Yeah, uh, the tech has definitely matured quite a bit since the article. Uh, we're looking at uh, much larger payload uh, insertion and looking at now uh, orbital insertion for our customers. So it's, it's, it's starting to build a lot of momentum recently. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, reusable rockets. Why did somebody not come up with this before? How did you come up with it? Was it your education background or your kind of intuition? Uh, no, I, 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 I was going to pull the, the Newton uh, quote, which is, uh, I've definitely only seen better by standing on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> and, and that is absolutely true. I have some friends in, who have founded NASA and who have been working on the shuttle for 30, 40 years. And this has been a problem that they've been cracking at since uh, they started NASA and sometimes even before. Uh, but to answer your question directly, the reason why nobody's done it is the rocket equation. And that is, as you... Uh, fly higher, your uh, fuel decreases and your mass still remains the same to some degree. So you have to now optimize the rocket for a different altitude and a different pressure and all these other factors. It's just really, really difficult to do it with current tech. Uh, so 
the engines that they use for all rockets, that you know, even with the advances that Musk has done on the reusable uh, boosters, uh, cannot um, account for the change in altitude. Uh, thankfully, the people at Rocketdyne first cracked into a, a solution, and that is an aerospike, which would allow uh, you have a complete single stage to orbit reusable launch vehicle because it expands with the uh, change in pressure. And you, would, if, if with proper optimization, you know, which we're working on, which they, they kind of gave up back in the '60s because, mm-hmm. uh, well, primarily because Nixon just decided that that was the end of it. We're just going to go straight to the shuttle. We're not going to use your engine. But it was just really, really difficult between materials, between thermal, between to check on uh, leaks. It was, you know, it, it it was very difficult in a analog era. Now with digital and 3D printing and better material science, it's allowed us to not only do it better, but also do it quicker, cheaper, commercial off the shelf. It, it, it's very much now the age of garage rockets. So you have said previously that you have leapfrogged your rivals, moving from concept to launch in a very short space of time, which are proprietary 3D printed aerospike engine. Right. So who are your rivals if they exist even? Well, you know, we have uh, some significant rivals uh, who are using traditional engines, and they've been funded a lot quicker because it's, it's just much easier from an investment standpoint to look at and, and understand, like, okay, what's the risk level in this? You're using commercial off-the-shelf existing rocketry to do something that basically is just a mini Musk sort of idea, so I'll fund that better. So that, that puts them a little bit ahead of us, but in terms of tech, there's really nobody that's doing Aerospike right now. There was somebody that was trying it for a little bit, and they decided, you know, this is just too hard for us uh, right out the bat. We fortunately have a very uh, quick uh, team that can move in a, uh, a small, fast, mobile way to execute process on, on a very quick uh, schedule. And that's a long way of, around of basically saying we test it, we look at the results, we try it again. And that sounds relatively common sense simple but you look at these larger companies like Boeing and Lockheed and even to some extent SpaceX they can't move that quickly it's very difficult yet you have to go through all these different committees retrain thousands of people you know we have a very small uh, mobile force that we can expand or contract as we need it and that has allowed us to uh, advance the detect to the point that we're right on the edge of coming to a single staged orbit reusable launch vehicle who are your customers and business partners? So the space has expanded tremendously since the article. Uh, I think when the article was posted... And the article we're talking about is something I wrote about. Yes. Yeah, that was back in the post, uh, what was it, 2016? 16. Yeah. So at that point, there was about maybe 200 launches of what uh, our customers are, which are small sats, which is about could be as small as a bread box, could be as big as a small car. But relative to traditional satellites, which are the size of school buses, it's, it's a much different mass envelope. Uh, so that has gone from about 200 a year to between now and 2023, you're looking at, well, including SpaceX, you're looking at over 40,000 satellites going to be going up. So you grew up in Babylon, Long Island, and you sadly watched military space industrial players like Northrop Grumman 
shed thousands of middle class jobs. Right. Now you want to bring jobs back. Is that realistic? Is there enough qualified workers on Absolutely. Long Island? Absolutely. Between uh, the manufacturing capability, the tech capability, I work closely with alumni at Stony Brook and some other colleges on Long Island that uh, they're just looking for opportunities like this. Uh, we're not we're not exactly ready to start employing thousands of people yet, but we started talking to uh, hypersonic research customers out in Ronkonkoma and other places uh, that could help uh, create a much bigger footprint for us up here, and we see that only expanding even, even further because from from a, a research and development standpoint, it just makes more sense to go after the talent up here versus anywhere else. So we've looked at. Uh, the UK as well as uh, uh, Europe to some degree only because there's some uh, potential partners there that would help broker the customers to us in terms of uh, bringing satellite customers to us so it would be easier to just have a presence over there to deal with uh, customers in the UK and, and uh, I think ultimately Brussels so we've had some early discussions but uh, nothing too serious at this point but I think in the future this c could work really well just because it, it's much easier to walk down to a local office or, or have, a, have a meeting with somebody in country versus having a conference call with a six hour time difference. We'll come back to Christopher Craddock of Rocketstar just after this short commercial break. Chris will talk to me about space farming, transporting cattle to the moon. He'll talk about his own unique background and the future of his company, Rocketstar. Beam me up. Why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls Where War Ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, Where War Ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. Now you have an interesting background. Uh, your dad was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You were on the floor yourself. You were a former trader. Yeah, I was more of an upstairs broker, but I did do some work on uh, the floor of the Amex and the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and uh, I also worked with my father uh, at our firm uh, for a, a good decade, uh, working on commodities and also to some degree stocks and advisory business. Describe the size of these rockets I think the exciting thing for us is uh, when you deal with large rockets like the uh, what ULA is putting up, which is the size of basically a Chrysler building, uh, or something even the size of what Musk is putting up, which is close to 200 feet, that, the, the equations are really paper thin, and it's very difficult to find a profit uh, to put a payload, even if you were able to figure out a single stage to orbit. 
something on the order of what we're looking at, which is about 40 feet to 90 feet, then the envelope is, is wide enough that you can still make some money and find a way to have true reusability. Uh, and also, something this small, uh, there's not a lot of major systems. There's not a lot of uh, major uh, things you have to figure out in terms of piping and running lines and computers and everything else. So you can th the idea of rapid manufacturing, a rapid turnaround uh, for true, true reusability becomes more uh, intoxicating in the sense that you can build it fast, you can fix it fast. You don't have to worry about uh, you know major infrastructure to support something large. I mean, we can put the current rockets we have on the back of trucks. Uh, the one that we have waiting for launch uh, is now in a two-car garage. So th these are all things that are accessible for uh, something of our size and also makes uh, for a, a good business structure going forward. We've looked at space in Brooklyn. Uh, we haven't taken any just yet because we don't have a full understanding of what uh, customers are ultimately going to demand of us. But uh, there is active space that we've looked at in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, as well as different warehousing that we've had uh, serious discussions with uh, that can, at, at a moment's notice, take us on. So we kind of work on a very flexible, fast uh, sort of uh, operative status. So we don't want to take on too much overhead uh, too soon. That's something I've learned very painfully in my last business. So uh, while it's it's more than willing to work with us, I don't want to uh, jump before I, I get some customers in the door. I want, I want to get to the point where it's too painful not to have uh, space in Brooklyn before I start taking space in Brooklyn. I have to ask you about uh, spaceship tourism. That seems to be what gets people excited today. Is that a realistic idea? Yes. And when is it going to happen? And how will it work? I think the first one that's going to actually do it is Virgin. And it will happen when it happens. And when I say that, it, it sounds evasive, but when you put up a rocket like what we're doing, you can be hard and fast because if it blows up, okay, we just got to call the insurance agent. Uh, you put up a fixed-wing aircraft that you drop from a plane that ignites a rocket engine with people on board, that's, that's a totally different equation. So you have to do a lot of research, testing, man hours, pilot training, all of this, all of these processes have to be checked out before you do it, uh, uh, e even if willy-nilly. Uh, but Branson is very careful. His team are very careful. And I think while we're close, I don't think it's going to happen before eh, probably the fall of 20. I think by fall of 20, you'll have people going up, e even if it's just not once a month, it it'll be happening. We already had three go up uh, as more of a test than anything. But from what I've seen, what I've heard, and what people have told me in the industry, uh, Branson's going to do it when he does it, uh, and he really doesn't want it to fly unless he's flying with his family. He wants it to be that safe, and I think that's the way to go. That, that's the appropriate way to go. But it's really for the 1% right now. I mean, the average yeah. Joe is not going to be able to get a return ticket to wherever, Moon, Mars. But this is the same sort of structure that we had in the 30s. Uh, you look at piloted aircraft in the 30s, they were basically just motorized kites. And it, it really was the uber, uber rich. It wasn't even just the rich flying around. Mm -hmm. 
And they went through their whole pain and process. And then, you know, Howard Hughes came out and started saying, hey, why don't we just introduce this to the rest of the masses? And he started flying people around at uh, higher altitudes and better aircraft. And it actually did become accessible for the rich and for the not so rich. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the better way to go simply because man rated is different than uh, uh, regular rocketry, especially hypersonics. You talk about hypersonics and you look at the people that did do hypersonics in the past, you're not even talking like regular aircraft. I mean, regular aircraft, you and I can go out there and build our own and fly it. Hypersonics, I mean, when the SR-71 was on the, 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 the pad, it was leaking fuel, specifically because it got so hot flying that fast that the panels expanded to the point that the leaks were gone. But it had to refuel when it was in the air. It was such a complex process and engine you really had to be one of the best pilots in the world to fly said things so and that was like 30 40 years ago uh it it's a totally different animal that has to be explored uh with a lot of man hours before you can introduce it to a commercial public that wants to be able to take it like you're taking a bus you got to get that sort of certitude and robustness before you can actually have uh, something open up to people who can afford it uh, on, on a more commercial level. I saw an artist's interpretation of what space travel would look for tourists in decades hence, and it was like something out of Star Trek. Yeah. There was no gravity. People were enjoying a lot of pleasurable pursuits and watching big screens. And is that far fetched? Yes, and now I, I think uh, I think by the twenty thirties you'll have uh, the um, the thrill seeker out there, you know, the, the, the person that, that, that climbs Everest or, or jumps off of uh, cliffs in the Amazon, those are the people that are going to be out there. Paying a, a hefty tag oh, price. Absolutely. What would the typical price be for that? I'd, that would be hundreds of thousands. Okay. I, would th I would think, and that would probably be cheap at mm -hmm. that point, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's achievable. But there's still, there's even what we're talking about now in terms of space tourism is still basically have mostly gravity. Even mm -hmm. though you're up there and you're looking at uh, the curvature of the Earth and everything floats around, you're coming right back within, you know, eight to ten minutes. If you're up there on the moon or you're on Enceladus or Mars or something like that, now you're dealing with gravity not being present for months, if not years. And that is a situation that NASA and other people just have not solved. You look at Scott Kelly, who I met uh, a few months ago, he came down after being there over a year in space, and he was a mess. You know, his, his legs blew up. Uh, he couldn't walk for months. You know, the, the, the bones in his body changed. His telomeres on his uh, 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 DNA actually expanded and contracted again. You know, he had lesions in his head. His eyes bulged. Have, all of these issues need to be solved before people go up there on a long-term basis uh, for that kind of tourism. How was his mental faculties? So far, so good. He was off the earth for one year. I believe so. I believe he was either a year or close to two years, but it definitely held the record. For, the number that's hitting my head is 562, which is over... It's uh, remarkable. Yeah, that's an incredible amount of time. Uh, you need a strong mental composition yeah, uh, that, and a lot of other abilities. That, that's a guy that's flown 40 different aircraft in his, in his career. Uh, you know, he was the best of the best of the best, so to speak. Well, maybe we get him on my podcast soon, if you can arrange an interview. 
I'd love to try. I'm sure he'd, he'd be open to it. But I think he's also running for office, so he might be a little bit busy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we could do a telephone interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, we don't want to get too granular because I want to come back to what you do. Does it this raise sort of territorial issues, political issues? Are we going to colonize space yeah. the way we colonized countries back in the day? Have are, are, Do you think the Chinese are talking about this and the Americans having secret meetings about this whole concept? Chinese aren't talking about it. They're doing it. They've mm. got a rover on the backside of the moon, something the Americans have never done or the Russians have never done. Whose territory is it or is it universal territory? So the current law is that a treaty of 1967, which I believe the Chinese did sign, uh, no any one country can own the moon or even any heavenly body. However, 2015, uh, before Obama left office, he uh, ratified and approved a uh, another a new treaty that said that you may not own what you're sitting on, but you can take stuff, bring it back, and you therefore own it. So I think that opens up the whole idea for mining and also occupying, but not owning. So there's great and immense possibilities in outer space on the moon. Some people worry about the Earth's resources being depleted, global warming, not enough food production, maybe even overpopulation, which is a red herring, we know. So you seem to be on the other side of that equation. There's immense and enormous possibilities on this Earth and in outer space. Uh, I like to think of myself as a conservationist. Uh, and going back to the idea of Teddy Roosevelt conservation, uh, he formed Yellowstone and the other parks departments to get people off of it. Because he felt the only way for it to be, be better was the, getting people to stop walking around there. And ultimately it did work out. So I think uh, whatever you want to say about climate science, what have you, if you really want to try and save it, you've got to get people off of it. And not just people. Uh, you look at the amount of uh, arable land on this planet, it's under 10%. And most of that is, is uh, taken up by you know corn, wheat, or livestock. And it takes something of the order of like 400, 800 gallons of water just to make one hamburger. So I, I think at the very least, if we put cattle on uh, a space station, or corn or wheat, because you have unlimited real estate in space. You just need the time and the uh, mechanical capability to build something up there. And then you can just do whatever you want. So if you then therefore have all of your farms in space, you can then just do orbital drops of all your food to the rest of the planet and not have to worry about taking up all of that arable land. You freed up the entire plains to tourism again, uh, let the buffalo run free, so on and so forth. And cattle? travel in spaceships livestock has it been done has it been talked about yes they've done a lot of research on zero g and animals and also probably more importantly uh, plants because you know as much as we want to replace livestock with plants corn and all these other plants take up a lot of space and also require a huge amount of fertilizer it's a very dirty business uh, so plants actually grow better in a zero g environment they grow bigger they have better yield uh, they are not affected by the radiation that is involved in space, at least so far. Uh, so there's been a lot of research for that reason, and I think that's one very big solution that we can explore as a species.
So our dairy production might be coming from the moon. Yeah, I'm up for that. Uh, lunar, lunar, uh, <laughs> yeah, what do you call it? lunar juice. Yeah, that'll be good. The lunar milkshake. Yes. It's so good, it's out of this world. And uh, this is going in an interesting direction. I, I got to keep pressing forward for the future of mankind and humanity. Yeah. Food production on space. What about that? Would you have to have coverings and some kind of tanks? No, I would do a complete uh, O'Neill cylinder. And what that is, is it's just a giant tube in space, uh, the size of not, not a. So imagine taking the entire island of Manhattan and just floating it in space and covering it. So that's uh, that size of a footprint. And that's orders of magnitude above any manufacturing capability we have now. So that's why I think between 3D printing, AI machinery, and all this other stuff, it really has to come together uh, as a, a, a very large business structure to complete something like that. And the first solution is rapid uh, access to space. So it's one of the main reasons why we explored basically a pickup truck of space, you know, these, these little rockets that can go daily, hourly. I want to have it at one point where we're having 10 to 20 rockets going up per day, where we're just either flowing them out in the ocean, firing it up, or firing it from uh, any particular landmass. We're constantly just going up to support whatever's up there. Because if you think about it, when you're on a build site, you know, you, you don't just bring all of your tools out with you. You don't bring all of your materials all at one shot. You're constantly like, well, I, I need to go get a hammer. Okay, I'll be right back. So you need that kind of capability in order to support the kind of manufacturing we need to put up, which is a gigantic amount of space. Is there enough financing for all these major projects? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that because I've, uh, a friend of mine who's in the uh, uh, real estate business as well as investment banking has actually said there is a huge amount, trillions of dollars, that is looking for a new type of investment class, not only just throw money at where it's huge risk, but also something that is uh, less risky than uh, what is currently out there. So they're in the real estate, they're in stocks, they're in you know alternative investments like commodities and things like that. They want something to kind of diversify away their risk from you know being too stock, too bond, or whatever. So it's, it's like the the wild west of spaceship exploration. I mean, there's a lot of pluses and minuses there. It could turn into an air bubble. Yeah, it, it could be what everyone's hoping it's not, which was what happened back in uh, late 90s, early 2000, when they were putting up all these satellites. They were, they were trying to put up constellations to get better access to space, and then the bottom fell out of the stock market or for whatever reason you have, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now with more robust uh, access to a lot of uh, different technology on a very cheap uh, uh, format. It's it's much th- there's a much lower overhead to achieve something like this. Like you can put up a satellite now for less than two hundred grand between building it compared with watch a decade, two decades ago. Uh, you could say two million, but it's probably closer to twenty million. Costs are dropping. Yeah, yeah. Launch access is getting much easier. Besides us, there's 138 other companies trying to build a small sat launcher. So uh, the you know it's kind of like what when Vanderbilt was uh, uh, competing with the U.S. government to get to San Francisco, it it didn't benefit the U.S. government, but it benefit the U.S. people. Uh, very soon, there would be a huge amount of choice to get access to space. 
So there's a return on investment. While never guaranteed, there are very tantalizing possibilities and investors look for those, seek them out. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, one positive thing happened, again, goes back to Branson. Uh, even though it wasn't the most traditional way to do an IPO, when he put Virgin Galactic on the board uh, the other week, it then kind of signaled to the market that this is matured out of uh, the whole you know, shotgun approach, where you're, you're no longer just like investing a thousand companies, hope something works 20 years from now. Now you've got one that, you know, yes, it did start back in 2002, but it's now listed as an IPO. You know, theoretically, it has succeeded. Uh, Let's come back to your Rocket Star company. How does all this fit into it? The the future of exploration, rockets, investment opportunities, and what's the next step? We want to turn this into what the airlines are doing currently. You have any at any one time. There's a hundred thousand flights in the air. Uh, we're not going to be all of that, but we want the industry to turn into that. Because once you do, then it becomes as easy as like changing a battery in an iPhone. Nobody really thinks about it. Nobody thinks about their, their iPhone or their, their car lease or anything like that. For the most part, it just works. And then you can go on to the bigger opportunities, space farms, colonizing uh, the moon, which now the president has gotten behind, uh, putting up asteroid mines, doing all of the somewhat much more riskier things but is now supported by a robust network of launchers and, and uh, capability to get access to space. You're based here in Manhattan. You have offices around the country, overseas. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, how should they reach you and your website address? Best way is get through the website, and that's uh, www.rocketstar.nyc, uh, and all of our contact information is on there. Chris Craddock of Rocket Star, may the wind be at your back and enjoy space exploration. And when you get there to these dairy farms in the moon, make sure you keep me an ice cream sundae. I'll be sure to do that. It's <laughs> nice and cold for you. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973 664 9460 in the US or email burndesk at gmail.com.